All right, I want to welcome you again to Grace Community Church this morning. We come now in our worship of God together. We come now to the preaching of the Word. And so I want to invite you to turn this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. For several years now, as a church, we have been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're making our way uh, towards uh, the very end of that Gospel. We've had a few uh, interruptions where we break out for different reasons and come back in. But we've, we've been preaching consecutively through Matthew's Gospel. And this morning we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, as has been mentioned uh, earlier by our brother Greg. And before we open this passage and study it together, we're going to pray and we're going to ask for God's help this morning. And so let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we come today in the name of Jesus and we thank you, Lord, that we get to gather this morning for Christian worship, Lord, for the fin- to celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill our souls this morning with joy. God, we pray that you would bear witness today to the word of the cross. Lord, as we study this passage together, we pray that you would encourage our souls, awaken our souls. God, we ask that you would help us to feel the weight of the cross, to see the beauty of the cross this morning, and that you would restore our joy, that you would increase our joy, the joy of salvation today. Lord, we are those whom you spoke of in your word, those who dwelt in darkness, and yet we have seen a great light. And we pray that you would let that light shine this morning, the light of salvation, the light of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning we come to the cross of Jesus, the pinnacle of Matthew's gospel, and really the climax or the pivot point of the whole Bible. And so I want us to think for a second before we read this passage of just how central and weighty the cross of Jesus is. For thousands of years, the people of God have been prepared for this moment through promises given to Israel by God's prophets. And in this moment, those promises of salvation make a great transition on the cross of Jesus from promise made to promise kept. Now think of how many of those promises we could recall this morning. Think of Genesis chapter 22 on the Mount Moriah. Abraham takes his beloved son, his only son, and God gives a promise on that mount that on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. God will provide a lamb for a sin offering. And for over a thousand years, the people of God have waited for the arrival of that lamb on that mountain and the fulfillment of that promise. That's Genesis 22. You could also go to Isaiah 53. God promises the suffering servant to Israel that would arise and bear the sin of the nation. So it's Isaiah 53. Or the promise from Daniel 9 that there was coming a day where God would bring in an everlasting righteousness that would make true atonement for sin. And there would be no more need for sacrifice. Or think of Zechariah 13, a promise that there would be a fountain opened For God's people that would finally cleanse them from sin. Now we could go on and on and on. But this is where those promises pass from promise made to promise kept. That's how central the cross is in the story, in the sweeping scope of the scriptures. Now think for a moment of how central the cross is, not only in the Bible, but in eternity. So I want you to think about that, that there's coming a day where we're going to, Greg actually prayed for this, for dying grace for the people of God, where we pass out of this world and we enter the next world. Think of how central the cross is in eternity. The Bible tells us that Jesus will be worshipped forever 
for what happens in this moment that we're about to read about this morning. John's Gospel tells us that the scars of his crucifixion remained even after he was raised from the dead. He summons his disciples to him in John's Gospel and he invites them to peer at the scars on his hands and his pierced side. And that same John tells us in Revelation 5 as he sees the glorified Christ... He sees the Lamb of God standing, he's living, and yet John describes him this way, standing as though he had been slain. In other words, there's something about the appearance of the glorified Jesus that would indicate to you that this living one, standing lamb, this worthy one in all of heaven is one who tasted death and overcame it. This is how God's people will know Jesus forever and ever and ever. Revelation 5, we will sing to him, Worthy are you, O Lord. Listen, for you were slain and you ransomed us for God. In other words, if you are in Christ, there will never ever be a moment where you graduate past the, the, the cross of Jesus Christ. It will be central. It will be the central way you know and worship Jesus throughout the ages. And that makes perfect sense to you, right? As a believer, uh, this is why we love the Lord Jesus. This is why we love him though we have not seen him. Why do we love Jesus Christ? Because the Bible says that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. So if there is one thing to zone in on in the Bible, and there's not, there's a lot to zone in on. But if you had to pick and there was one thing to zone in on that you would know well, that, you, that would be your constant meditation. It would be this moment and all that it means, Christ crucified. Or Paul calls it the word of the cross. Every human being you have ever met needs a scriptural, spiritual understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's what we're after this morning. Let's read this passage together. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. This is the word of God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now remember, we said that our goal today was to pursue a scriptural understanding, a spiritual understanding 
of the crucifixion. And with that said, I want to give a few reminders. I want to point out a couple of things that we're not after this morning. Okay, And first is this. We are not after a mere sentimental understanding of the crucifixion. And what I mean by that is this. It is possible for you to be extremely moved emotionally as you consider the horrors, the horrific pain of Roman crucifixion and the injustice done to Jesus Christ. It's possible for you to hear those things, for you to be extremely emotionally disturbed about the message of the cross and yet miss the point of the crucifixion. We are not after a merely sentimental understanding of the cross. Neither are we after a merely historical understanding of the crucifixion. Again, it is possible that you could vividly recount in detail every detail of that passion timeline, the suffering timeline of the final hours of Jesus Christ. You could, rem- you could memorize it like a robot of this happened and then this happened and then this happened and yet miss the point of the cross. And so we are not after a merely sentimental nor a merely historical knowledge of the crucifixion. We are after a spiritual understanding of the cross of Jesus. And by spiritual understanding, we mean the meaning that the Holy Spirit teaches us in His Word. Not just the things that we can see with our eyes. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but just think about this reality that you could have been standing there that day on Golgotha and watched the Son of God take his final breath. You could have been standing there and heard this cry ring out in your ears and yet missed the point of his death on the cross. How do we know that? Because there were people that were standing there that were totally blind to the nature of this death. It happened right in front of them and they missed it. So we need to see past the physical, historical realities to the unseen spiritual realities that are taking place in this moment. The things that we can only perceive by faith, the things that we can only perceive by the Scriptures. And if I were to summarize those unseen realities under one phrase, the realities that we see in this text... I would, I would make that phrase, God-forsakenness. What is the thing that is happening that you cannot see with your physical eyes? And the way I would summarize that is the God-forsakenness of Jesus Christ. And this is what makes the crucifixion of Jesus so horrific. It was not... Merely that he was abandoned by his friends and all his disciples left him. It was not merely that. It was not merely that his own countrymen, the Jews, delivered him over, their own Messiah, their own king, to crucifixion. It wasn't merely that. And neither, and most importantly, was it merely the physical pain inflicted on Jesus by the Romans. What what made the cross so horrific for Jesus Christ was the God-forsakenness of this moment. Consider this. As Jesus hangs on the cross and that scream rings out from Golgotha, Jesus does not say, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, the pain, the pain. What does Jesus say? My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? 
that scream is referred to in Christian theology as the cry of dereliction. And that word dereliction is just a synonym for abandonment. Okay? This is referred to as the cry of abandonment or the cry of separation that rings out from the lungs of our Savior as He is crucified on Golgotha. And the spiritual understanding that we are after this morning forces this question, what does that cry mean? When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? And we'll begin unpacking this phrase with noting this is another example of Jesus quoting the Old Testament. So this is a quotation that comes from Psalm 22. In fact, it's Psalm 22, verse 1. And just stop right there and consider how amazing that is. Just that in itself uh, shows us this another glimpse of how full Jesus was of the Bible. Think about that. He is being stretched to the very limits of human suffering, not only the physical kind, but the soul-crushing anguish that Jesus is experiencing on the cross. And what comes out? Bible, Bible, Bible. He's processing everything in his entire life, even his darkest moments. He's processing it through that lens of Scripture. He is full of the words of his Father. So in this moment, that cry rings out and another Bible verse comes out. This time, Psalm 22, verse 1. And the quotation of the first verse of the psalm would have been a shorthand way of quoting the entire psalm. You might not know this, but there was a time where we didn't have Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. There were no chapter divisions in the Bible and definitely no verse uh, separations in the Bible. There was no Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4. There was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Psalm right there. So Jesus quoting the first verse of this Psalm will be a shorthand way of quoting the whole thing. And Psalm 22 is a psalm about a righteous sufferer who expresses his anguish to God. And in the first part of that psalm, for a time, God does not answer his prayer. He's suffering, he's crying out to God, and in his, in his anguish he says, God, you don't answer, God, you don't hear me. Jesus takes this psalm. And he sees himself in this moment of crucifixion as living out Psalm 22 in its ultimate sense. Jesus is the righteous sufferer crying out to his Father, but heaven is completely silent at Golgotha. There is not a word from the Father to answer his prayer. And Jesus is conscious of this silence he is aware of this separation he is experiencing something totally unique for him the separation from the father now we need to explain this carefully several things to say here we'll start we'll start with Herman Bavink theologian Herman Bavink reminds us that we cannot interpret the cry of dereliction as merely subjective. In other words, some people explain this as that this is something that Jesus was feeling subjectively, but he really wasn't forsaken. He felt forsaken, but he really wasn't forsaken. Bob Inc. is right, and he says we cannot interpret this as merely subjective forsakenness. As though Jesus only felt forsaken. No, he reminds us that we can only interpret this as objective forsakenness. Jesus felt forsaken on the cross because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. So we're dealing with real separation in this moment. 
But we need to qualify this almost immediately. This is great mystery in this moment. What do you mean separation? Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son. What do you mean separation? And just as we must must say that this forsakenness was real and objective, at the same time, we must say that the Trinity was never broken in this moment. It's not like the Trinity broke up for three hours on the cross. That cannot happen. That cannot happen. In other words, these are the guardrails. The forsakenness is real, but it, but it relates to the Son of God in His incarnation. He's bearing this separation according to His human nature. The man Christ Jesus is being separated from God in this moment. And this is the worst thing that a human being can ever suffer. And Jesus is bearing it on the cross. We get confirmation that God forsakenness is exactly what Jesus is experiencing here. Because the cry of dereliction... And the darkness that falls upon Golgotha, they point to the same reality. In other words, Matthew tells us in verse 45 that there were three hours of darkness that that covered the land in this moment. Now that was a real historical thing that happened at the crucifixion. You could have seen it with your eyes. It got dark. The sun didn't shine for a period of time. But again, you couldn't have perceived what that darkness means apart from a spiritual understanding of the cross. One writer said it this way, that at the birth of Christ, it was midday at midnight. And at the death of Christ, it was midnight at at midday. In other words, there were signs that marked the entrance and the exit of the Son of God from this world. Matthew tells us that the darkness lasted for three hours and it was a symbol of God's judgment, God's wrath falling upon Jesus. Now this comes right out of the Old Testament. Listen to Amos chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. On that day, declares the Lord... I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. So this darkness is a judgment metaphor is symbolic of God's wrath and God's anger just like that darkness that fell upon Egypt in the book of Exodus indicated God's anger and God's judgment falling upon that nation but it wasn't dark in the land of Goshen the plague fell up the darkness plague fell upon God's enemies so remember the Bible tells us God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so the darkness falling upon Golgotha is this indication of God is turning away. His favor is turning away in this moment. Christians sing songs about this moment. The Father turns his face away. We sing about this moment where Jesus stands in our place bearing our wrath. This is the separation that Jesus anticipated earlier in Matthew's gospel. Remember, we've already talked about this a few weeks ago. In Gethsemane, he begins to tremble because of the cup. And he begins to plead with the Father and ask if there's any way possible that this cup could be taken from him. This is the cup. The cup of wrath that Jesus was destined to drink. The wrath of God. The wrath of the Father. Now what happened in the garden almost killed him. 
Just the contemplation of drinking this cup and experiencing this separation. It took him to the very limits of his humanity. That was Gethsemane. On Golgotha, it did kill him. At Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. On Golgotha, he's now spilling his blood. And not just a little bit, he's spilling out his life in this moment. He's being crushed in his soul. This is the suffering of the Son. And listen, it wasn't like Genesis 22. We referenced that earlier where Abraham and Isaac go up on the mount and he is in, is in the process of offering his only son and a voice booms out from heaven and says, Stop! He's crying there, crying out to the Father. And heaven is completely silent. No stop, no voice, no answer, no intervention. Not a word. Now remember our two guardrails here. On the one hand, the Son is experiencing divine separation as the incarnate Christ in a real sense. It's real what He's experiencing. But he is experiencing this as the man, Christ Jesus. And the best question you could ever ask is, why would God forsake his son? Why would God's son cry out to God and God the Father not answer his son? And the only answer to this question is, is the Christian doctrine of substitution. That there's something happening on this cross and Jesus is acting on behalf of others, not Himself. If He were acting on behalf of Himself, He would cry and His Father would immediately answer. He always sets the Father before Him. The Father always hears His beloved Son. Remember, Our salvation requires the justice of God to be satisfied. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. God God cannot, He's so holy, He can't even look upon sin. And the only way, and I was probably 20 years old before I remember being told this truth, the only way God will ever forgive you is a just way. Sinners need mercy. And and, and most of us are aware that we need to be forgiven of our sins. Very few are aware that you will only receive just mercy. The only kind of forgiveness that God will ever give you is a just mercy, a just forgiveness. He will not compromise His justice and His holiness to extend some skewed version of love and mercy. He does forgive sinners. He will forgive sinners. But His mercy is always side by side with His justice. Well, what do we see here in this moment? More so than anywhere else in the entire Bible do we see the justice and the mercy of God mingle together, even kissing each other in this passage, the perfect mingling of justice and mercy. You say, what do you mean? Is God just? Does God punish sin? Does God judge sin? And the answer is yes. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. What do you see at the cross? Justice, justice, justice. Darkness, curse, separation. And you could ask the same question, but is God merciful? Does God love sinners? Does God forgive sin? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. Look at the cross. Mercy poured out on sinners from the cross of Jesus Christ, but in a just way. But in a just way. Romans comments on this moment that God through the gospel, 
forgives sin in such a way that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And if you ever you know, wondered why, why is Jesus the only way? John 14, Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. There's no other way. Buddha, uh, thousands of other... There is no other way to God. Muhammad can't get you there. Buddha can't get you there. Insert false religion. They can't get you there. Self-help can't get you there. Why is there no other way? And this is the answer. Because there's no other mercy that satisfies God's justice. Jesus is the only way to the Father because Jesus is the only one who can pay for your sin. He's the only one who can pay for your sin. Here justice was satisfied so that love and mercy can flow freely from the cross of Jesus Christ. Again, this is unfathomable mystery unfathomable on the cross Jesus is simultaneously the object of the father's wrath and the father's love think about this this morning here the father's anger is poured out on Jesus but the anger of God is not poured out on him as though he were personally guilty of the sins that he's being punished for. They're poured out on him. The anger of God is poured out on the Son as our substitute. It's not Jesus' sins that have aroused the anger of God. It's our sins that held him there until it was accomplished. He's the sin bearer in this moment. The Father is not personally angry with the Son, the anger is fallen on Jesus as our sin bearer. As Jesus bears our sins in his body on the tree. Paul tells us that so closely does Jesus identify as our substitute. That Paul tells us that in this moment Jesus became sin. Though he knew no sin, he became sin. And yet, all the while the anger and the wrath that Jesus is bearing, He never ceases to be the beloved only begotten Son of His Father. He doesn't stop being the beloved. He can't. He's eternally the beloved Son. At the cross you could say, in another sense, that the Father was never more pleased with His Son than right here. Why? Because never was the Son's perfect obedience to the Father's will so clearly manifested than His obedience unto death, Philippians 2, even the death of the cross. Perfect man in perfect submission to His Father in heaven. And so here we see the eternally beloved Son temporarily cursed by the Father. In this moment, the incarnate Jesus was aware of the Father's favor, the Father's smile, the Father's favorable presence being pulled away, turned away from Him as He began to bear God's curse as the darkness began to fall on Golgotha. This would have been the moment that Jesus entered into the outer darkness. It's a metaphor for hell in the Bible. Where Jesus entered into the abyss of alienation from the favorable presence of God. Separated from the favor of God as the man Christ Jesus. He would have experienced in his soul the horror of being exiled outside the camp. Removed from the favor of God. And again, this is the climax of his suffering, not the physical pain, but the soul anguish of bearing God's wrath. Listen to all the different ways that the Bible describes what happens in this moment. 
Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that in this moment he is giving his life as a ransom for many. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that here Jesus is made to be sin, though he knew no sin. Again, Galatians 3.13, that in this moment, Jesus became a curse for us in this moment. He's dying a curse-bearing death for us in this moment. Hebrews chapter 9 says that in this moment, Christ is being offered up to bear the sins of many. He's being offered up to God as a sacrifice for sin. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2.24 that in this moment he is bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And centuries earlier than all of these, Isaiah had prophesied this moment in vivid detail. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all All these are language of substitution, that spiritual work that Jesus is accomplishing in our place. Now remember, you could have been standing there that day and you could have seen a righteous man die in the darkness. But you couldn't have seen these things. These things must be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit through His Word. You couldn't have seen Jesus dying as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin, and that's the real meaning of the cross. Think of all the crucifixion of Jesus makes clear to us. I'll list six things here. Number one, what do we see here as we see Christ crucified and give his life? Number one, we see the horrific guilt of sin, the nature of sin. How bad is sin? One of the ways to answer that question is look at the cross. The cross gives us a picture of what every one of us deserve. What if God were to pay you what you are owed? What would that look like? And one of the ways to answer that question is it would look like your soul being crushed under the anger and the wrath of God like Jesus on the cross. Here we see our wages were paid to him. And even as we say that, be reminded this morning that forgiveness of sin is no easy thing. This is not a willy-nilly thing like we sin and God just forgives us of our sin. Look how costly this is. Look how costly it is to forgive sinners of their sin. And speaking in such a way that forgiveness is no big deal or it's this cheap thing, what does it dishonor? It dishonors the sacrifice, the death of the beloved son. It dishonors the holiness of God. To bring us to glory, it costs nothing short of the death of the only begotten of the Father. That's a weight Sin is a weight, and the only way to remove that weight is through the death of Christ. And so we see the nature of sin at the cross. Number two, we see the nature of Christ's death. We see the nature of Christ's death. Jesus is not dying as a hero or as a martyr. He's not dying just as a righteous man who's suffering unjustly. This crucifixion account, and we, and we mentioned this several weeks ago, shows us that the nature of Christ's death is penal, substitutionary atonement. And I'll unpack each of those three words. It is penal. Christ is bearing a penalty 
in this moment. He is bearing the penalty of God the judge, the penalty of the law. Something is happening in this moment that's not just bad men, bad humans are uh, unjustly crucifying Jesus. No, something is being placed upon him in this moment. It's penal. It's a penalty. Substitutionary. That penalty is being placed upon Jesus in our place. He's bearing that penalty as our substitute. In other words, that penalty is the wages we are owed, but He is taking them instead of us. He's the Lamb in this moment. Atonement. His life is given as a sacrifice to God. It's not just an example uh, uh, of how we follow God to the very end, there's a payment being rendered to the Holy One of Heaven. There's a sacrifice being presented by a great high priest in this moment to God. A sacrifice that cancels our guilt, that turns away God's wrath. The death of Christ is penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement. Mockers refer to this doctrine as cosmic child abuse. What kind of God would inflict punishment on His Son? Christians refer to this, this doctrine as the gospel of the glory of Christ. The power of God that saves us from our sins. Number three, at the cross we see the faith of Christ. Consider in this moment... That in Jesus' darkest hour, what's he doing? He's praying. That's what the cry of dereliction is. It is a prayer to God. And notice that God is still his God. My God, my God, my God, my God. He feels abandoned, but he doesn't turn his back. We get a picture here of the faith of Christ. And even the Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes, that psalm ends in the vindication of the sufferer, of God uh, setting uh, right what was wrong. And Jesus is about to be vindicated by the Father with His glorious resurrection from the dead. So even the, the words of Psalm 22 on the lips of Christ are a proclamation of faith. Proclamation of the faith of Christ. He is putting his trust in God, though he is not conscious of God's favor. In other words, he's plunged into the outer darkness and he trusts the Father anyway. He's thrown into the darkness and he trusts God in the darkness. And so we have this glorious picture of the man Christ Jesus and his perfect faith, perfect trust in His Father to the very end. And it had to be this way, right? Because He's the spotless Lamb. And He's offering up this blameless sacrifice for sin. You could call Him the true and better Job. In Job chapter 13, Job says these words to God, that though God slay me, yet even still will I hope in Him. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross, that, that even in the darkness, even without any external indication that I have the favor of God, I will trust Him anyway. Though He slay me, yet I will hope in Him. No one ever trusted the Father like Jesus. Number four, we see the sufficiency of Christ at the cross of Jesus. We've mentioned this several times in, in, in the past several weeks. But just note, he's by himself when he does this. He's alone in the darkness. There are no disciples that are holding up his hands. There's nobody cheering him on. He's by himself. Completely alone in the darkness. He's drinking the cup that only he can drink. And he's drinking it by himself, down to the very, very dregs. He was alone in the darkness, doing what no one else 
could ever do. Bearing God's curse in his body on the tree. And he did it by himself. He bore the curse. And then the next chapter is going to show us that he rose the victor. He swallowed wrath. And then he rose from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the devil. And after bearing the curse, John's gospel tells us that Jesus rings out another cry from the cross prior to his death. And that cry is the words, it is finished. It is finished. Indicating that he has accomplished, finished completed what he came into this world to do. This death in this moment has fully and totally procured salvation for his people from the cross even before the resurrection. He's proclaiming the work is done. It is finished. Salvation is completed. Nothing more must be done. What more could be done? than the death of the beloved Son in our place and for our sins. This is why the apostles proclaim that condemnation has been swallowed up forever for those who trust in Christ. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, God forbid that we would ever think that the Son would bear our sins in his body on the tree and we would pay for them as well. God forbid we think like that. Think of how strong a foundation we have for Christian assurance. Not the little, you know, tiny, you know, Minnie Mouse kind, but the bold, righteous, lion assurance. My sins are forgiven forever. Why do we have such a foundation like that and such a ground? Because Christ suffered in our place. It's impossible that we would pay for the sins that Christ has already borne in His body on the tree. That would be, to use a legal term, double jeopardy. Double payment for our sin. And that would be an assault on the perfect justice of God. No, here we see that salvation is a finished work. Christian salvation is totally accomplished. It's not hope we may be saved, maybe we'll be saved, I really hope to be saved. It's a proclamation that it's done. It's finished. And again, we sing this. We, re- we take great joy as we drink down the truths of the gospel of full salvation, we, si- we sing things like this. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, listen, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. And the church of Jesus rings out. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. In other words, his greatest suffering is the greatest comfort our soul could ever receive because he's doing it for us, for us. And his curse-bearing death is more than enough to cover all of our sin, all of our sin. One of the greatest understatements is his grace is sufficient. I mean, think think, think of how understated that is, that the blood of Jesus is a sufficient covering for your sin. It's super, it's super abundant. It's more than enough. It's 10,000 times 10 million more than enough to wash away our sins. Number five, we see the love of Christ at the cross. He endures a horrific, curse-bearing, soul-crushing death. And it ought to melt your heart. This is where stone cold hard hearts of unbelief should melt into oblivion. As you contemplate the nature of this death and the one who is dying in our place. 
It should cause us to run to the cross, drink down mercy, fling ourselves upon the Lord Jesus. Why? Why should it cause those things? Because no one has ever loved you like this. No one. You might have had a mama who loved you, a grandma who loved you, a bunch of friends who loved you. No one has loved you like this. No one could. No one is able to love you like this. Only Jesus. And listen, think of the love that we have demonstrated here. The demonstration of the love of Christ for sinners. Jesus was rejected. Why? So that we could be accepted. The righteous one was forsaken so that the unrighteous ones could be forgiven of our sin. Jesus enters the outer darkness here. Why? So that we can live in eternal light. The light of God's favor. Jesus receives the curse in its totality in this moment so that we could receive, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He bore the curse. We get the blessing in all the blessings. The heavenly inheritance. Jesus entered the abyss of alienation and separation and abandonment. Why? So that we might know the blessing of adoption and nearness to God. And that we might carry this confidence all throughout this world that we will never be separated from the love of Christ. Why? Because He was separated for us in our place. Before you were ever born, Jesus loved you. And he demonstrated his love at the cross. Number six, we see the power of the cross. Notice that there are signs in this passage that accompany the death of Christ. And and they indicate to us that this is no ordinary execution. This is no ordinary man. This is a unique death. Four things are mentioned here. Number one, an earthquake. That's creation bearing witness. This is not unique. This is not ordinary. This is creation's maker. And creation is bearing witness to the death of Jesus. Next, we are told that some saints were raised from the dead. Man, it's a very strange passage. Matthew just, like, just passes over this no other gospel writer alludes to this sign but he tells us that some saints were raised from the dead indicating that this death it has life-giving power it has power to break death it has power to open tombs and there's a lot we don't know we don't know who these saints were we don't know if these were famous old testament saints the prophets we don't know if these were you know saints in this generation we don't know who they were or who they appeared to only Matthew records this but we know that they're bearing witness to the power of this death number 3 Matthew tells us that at, at the crucifixion as Jesus dies the centurion and his execution squad proclaim these words, Truly, this is the Son of God. That's his enemies bearing witness to the significance of his death. Creation bearing witness. Dead saints bearing witness. His own enemies bearing witness. And then we are told, Matthew tells us, That upon the death of Jesus, the veil that marked off the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple was torn. And he tells us this, from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Not bottom to top. Not an act of man. But from top to bottom, an act of God. This was the work of God to show what? Hebrews comments back on this imagery several times in the book of Hebrews and it tells us that in this moment God is indicating good news of great joy for all peoples he is indicating that a new and living way has just been opened for us through the death of Christ through the flesh of Christ 
that through this death, we now have access to draw near to the very presence of God. This death accomplished something that that whole temple system, all the priests and all those sacrifices could not accomplish. It bust the doors wide open to the holy of holies, the very presence of God. Those who were far off have now been brought near. How? Through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ. That veil torn is preaches to us the efficacy of the death of Christ. It actually accomplishes something. There's a way now open for sinners to draw near to the living God. And so we have this great transition. We have the temporary exile of the beloved Son on the cross and yet what does it do it secures the return of the separated ones the prodigals he's cast out so that we could be brought near and what kinds of gifts does Jesus give us and you could answer that in a lot of different ways but the best gifts that Jesus gives are himself I hope you believe that this morning. What does the death of Christ achieve for his people? More than anything else, our great boast in this world and the next world is we get God. We get the living God. We were far off from God, separated from God. Now we get God. We know him as our father. We were banished from him. Now we draw near to him. This is what Peter tells us. That he suffers for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he would bring us to God. New and living way. Veil torn open. Jesus brings sinners to God. This is the gospel. Friends, the only thing left for you to do is to draw near. The way has been made. There is a new and living way open for us. And the only thing left for us to do is to draw near. And listen, the only way to do that is through faith in Jesus Christ. To trust in Him. To rest in Him. To believe upon the Lord Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, we draw near to God. And this is exactly what... You should do. You should draw near to God. I cannot imagine a more offensive response than to hear the gospel of the glory of Christ. The the beloved son, exiled, separated, cursed, damned for sinners. And the response, ah, what's for lunch? I mean, I hear that, but I mean... I'm more worried about other things. Think of the guilt, the wrath that is stored up for the day of wrath, of hearing the proclamation of good news of great joy for all people, the death of the only begotten, and ignoring it or spurning it or knowing that there's a way open to the Father and not taking that way through simple faith, simple trust, in Christ, you should draw near to the Father through the Son by faith. That's exactly what you should do. That's exactly what you should do. And if you are here today and you have already been brought near, and there are many Christians in this room, what should we do? What should we do as we hear the gospel and we've been brought near to God? We're not separated from God anymore. We should stay near to God. We should live near to God. We should walk through this world with confidence, or Hebrews says boldness, that we know God. We know Him. We live near Him. We're not banished from Him. Our sins are forgiven. We should live near to God. This is your blood-bought inheritance as a Christian. This is what Jesus bought for you in that darkness. I'll close with this verse. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest 
over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name today. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work that you have accomplished and we proclaim that you are the only Savior. There is no other qualified. There is no other who came for us. You're the only one worthy in all of heaven and on the earth below. And we love you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would magnify the gospel all across this church, Lord. We pray that you would keep us in the love of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.